Y'all good? Yeah, I'm set. set. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It's Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast. I'm Tim Lindsay. And I'm Christian Bonner. Things are uh, still ticking along merrily. Uh, We appreciate all the feedback we've been getting about the live to Facebook podcast we did on Goat's Head Soup and Scarlet, the new track. Uh, Just today, actually, they dropped a new remix by that band, The War on Drugs, which is, you know, pretty similar to the original. Uh, Yeah, the Lindrum thing, I I don't want to be one of these channels where we just say rude things about everything, but, like, I'm really not sure that the Lindrum adds a great deal to it. I'm amazed that he got it to fit with the rhythm because that's really hard, but, you know, I I think the... um, the other mix is, 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 you know, that's all it needs to be, I think, for me. Yeah, I'm with you there. But still, you know, we're excited. We're, our pre-orders are steady and holding for Goat's Head Soup Deluxe. <laughs> um, also announced, since we spoke about that, is the next release in the no longer called from the vault, but it's the same series, essentially, for Steel Wheels Live from Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1989. Now, this show was broadcast on pay-per-view back in the day under the name Terrifying. Uh, And (laughs) And when Axel shows up, you understand why it's called that. Yeah. I'm sorry. If you're... Axel's a great guy. Back in 1989, you couldn't move for Guns N' Roses, so here they are again, uh, Izzy and Axel. And then uh, you get, obviously, Eric Clapton's solo on Little Red Rooster there. And the John Lee Hooker, which is a really unique thing because... Mick just leaves the stage. And, yeah. like, if we can just go launch right into this. Yeah, why not? I think this is really proof of how good a band they are. It's the same, like, when Bob Dylan comes by or somebody else like that. It's like, I always think they're so good at supporting other vocalists or, or yeah. whomever, guitarist, vocalist, whatever. I think you can really hear, especially in that long groove, you can just hear the rhythm section just stretch out. And to keep Clapton on stage and have... John Lee Hooker there is it's amazing it's unbelievable this is worth the price of admission I think alone and the fact that you do get terrifying and you get a lot of the steel wheels cuts and for me the hard thing is they're gonna have to beat the the bootleg mixes this is a rare time I, th- I think that that's kind of annoying when people say this but yeah like the broadcast mixes were really really good that I've heard well I think this is a case also where like with the Hampton 81 show that Clear Mountain was doing the live broadcast mix, like from a truck outside the convention center or wherever they were playing there. Yeah, so well, that would be... That w- essentially, it's just going to mean a little bit of spit polish and then expanding it out to 5.1 for the DVD. Or Atmos. Or Atmos. We're getting there. We're, getting, we're yeah, in the future now, people. Yeah, so like, um, historically, I was listening to Flashpoint the other day to kind of bone up mm-hmm. on this. And now that we've heard two Tokyo Dome shows um, live at the Max and like all these other interpretations of, of that tour. Yeah. I kind of think Flashpoint, while it has great performances and it's a rare example of sometimes edits helping, like cutting down the solo in Sympathy for the Devil is actually yeah. really helpful because it's so annoying. <laughs> I love, yeah, you can get the unexpurgated version on the Tokyo Dome. And I love, vault I love Keith's lead playing. And if you want to learn like every lick he knows... Uh, up to that point, they're all there. 
but <laughs> I, I think the song is better for it being, and they, I think they just needed to give Mick time to get down from that tower thing, you know. Yeah, I know. exactly, yeah. But, you know, the tones. Keep the pyro going over and over. With, with Flashpoint, like, they had that kind of Neumann head thing, which is kind of neither here nor there. It, it doesn't really make a huge difference in the sound. Oh, you're talking about the, like, the 3D spiral yeah, stuff. It's on kind the, of yeah, an, I don't like that. It's kind of annoying at best, and yeah. it's not even really like an interesting, bold mistake. Yeah. Uh, but overall, like the, it seems very clean and sterile, and it's a very good mix. Anyone would be happy with that. That's not what I'm saying, but what I think is interesting about these other ones, especially the broadcast mix of Atlantic City, is that you can actually hear all of Matt Clifford's parts. Yeah. And sure, maybe we don't want that. Like, they know not to put that whippity whip stuff in Midnight Rambler or Little Red Rooster. But on things like Terrifying, you know, those things really help. And it sounds yeah. really cool. And yeah, it drives the groove. And the stuff like his, like, synth hand claps on Start Me Up, like, it's, it's a fine balance. You want it there because the hand claps are such a feature on the record. But if it's, it's too it's much, live music it's, and you want to yeah. document what was there. It can't mm -hmm. be the feature, but I think anyone with a brain would know not to like ramp that up, you know? Yeah. And I think what's what's great about that broadcast message is that you can hear it, but it's not overpowering. That's what I want to hear from yeah. Sam Wheat or whoever. Yeah. I think it might be clear, man. We haven't we haven't seen confirmation. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and I'll come back to your point about the mix too, because I want to talk about live at the max specifically, but Sam Wheat also has done, I believe, an exclusive remix of the 75 uh, LA Friday show. Now, I had not realized until a couple of weeks ago we were talking that he did the, the DVD mix that was included on that release, the From the Vault uh, live at the LA Forum show, which is a different night from the audio download. So if you buy that package with the CDs and the DVD, you're getting two different shows. Sam Weed had mixed the one that was on the DVD and Clear Mountain mixed the one on the CD. Well now, just so that you'll pay a bunch of extra money for an import, they're releasing in Japan Sam Weed's version of The Other Night. So you can complete your Sam Weed dance card. Well, I'm very excited and, about this because I'm a big <laughs> fan of I'm a big fan of Sam Weed. Not that I have anything against Bob Clear Mountain, but yeah. Um, yeah. exciting to me. So that's coming. Uh, we're getting a 10-inch picture disc for one of the record store days, like plural, that are happening this year for Rock in a Hard Place and something else, I think. Isn't Scarlet? Scarlet is getting a 7-inch, I think, is one of the... Oh, right. But I know they're doing one something side for Record Store Day with Scarlet. Yeah, so maybe it'll be that War on Drugs remix, possibly. And then also, with the big 6 disc deluxe version of this Steel Wheels package, you're getting the Tokyo Dome From the Vault Extra show from the 24th of February, which is, again, a different show from the one that was released on the Stones Archive originally. So this is all getting a little bit transpottery, but all of this is to say that that all kind of pales in comparison to what we already have in terms of documentation for Steel Wheels. This was a long tour, started in North America in 89, and a lot of those shows are bootlegged. You can find really good quality of the previous show just before Atlantic City up in Montreal at the Olympic Stadium there, where they have the dudes from Living Color come out and play with them. 
uh, at the end. Uh, that's a really good show. Stuff like uh, this, the Toronto Skydome. Ah, uh, no, no, uh, some CNE. of which it was the CNE grounds. Oh right, yes, the CNE Stadium, late dearly departed. But then I think later in December they came back and played Skydome too. Like they did a lot of Toronto dates. It would have been it would have been just open then. Yeah, but the CNE performances are the ones that are landing on the bonus tracks for this new Steel Wheels box set. So I'm excited about those. Although they didn't include one hit to the body. Well, no one hit to the body, no sale, as we say. Yeah, that's that's what we say. <laughs> that's what we say. That's on. Uh, you can see that on YouTube if you want. Yeah. Um, to me, it it's it's pretty good, but um, without that Jimmy Page solo, it, it mm. it's kind of not as exciting. Um, yeah. It's it's, it's a fun minor... to see Jagger play the guitar intro and the acoustic, but yeah. Yeah, and Bernard and and. Um, I, I think it's still Cindy Mazel at that point. Whomever mm-hmm. they they, they kind of get a little feature towards the end when they, yeah. when they close it, which is it's it's interesting. I mean, our friend Christopher McKittrick said that you know like there's really no mm-hmm. shortage of things you can say about Steel Wheels, and yeah. whether you want to talk about how it kind of defined what rock tours were going to be for the next twenty years or fifteen or whatever till the music industry collapsed. But for the band, it's it's really when the arrangements like really get tightened up, mm-hmm. you know, because they had horns and keys and stuff in in the past, but it always felt it was kind of like, I'll just do whatever you want, you yeah. know. And and I guess if you have Nicky Hopkins and Bobby Keys and people like that, you can do that. And they got pretty far on that. When you want to go to the full horn section and backup singers, and and you end up with like thirteen people on the stage, if you don't have somebody like writing charts for that, you, it's going to turn into a disaster. And yeah. I think that maybe Steel Wheels got a little bit too too tight in terms of, you know, it's it's a little bit too on the rails. Because, I mean, I do like, you know, the whole thing with the Stones is like, they got to stay under rehearsed to the point where it still sounds fresh, but the, you want them to all like change chords at the same time and remember the lyrics and stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's still really, really important to acknowledge in the history of the band that this is really where the new era starts. There, there's a hard line there. We can debate about whether or not some of this started to come in on earlier tours. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's just like, oh, there's the Brian Jones era, there's the Mick Taylor era, and then there's the Ron Wood era. And to not acknowledge the contributions or to not really see that there is a delineation point after the band ostensibly breaks up, and bringing in all these side people. You know, Keith is always saying, oh, don't forget, like, the horns joined and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole sound of the band changed when McTaylor came in. This is the same thing, especially when Daryl comes in. Yeah. Like, to, to just say that, that from black and blue to now is all, like, I, I just, I, never, I don't understand that. No, you're quite right. It is another, and yes, this lineup of the band provisionally, you know, with the subtraction of Bill Wyman later on, it, it is essentially unbroken since the 70s. But with this live show, I think Keith described it as more of like a review, like, a, like an old-time soul review. Like you have a very worked out, choreographed flow to the piece. And that is something that while they had made gestures towards it before, this sort of theatrical presentation, specifically for an outdoor venue, is kind of what they're pioneering here. And really it is the marker of 
most of their live performances from here on out. Yeah, and I, I think that the version of the show that came out, minus the Rockette dancers and some of the things that they wanted, I think that it is like about as slick as you want it to be while it's still, you know, I think, and I think they definitely refined this. The set lists aren't too regimented, um, but there's enough structure. And I think this is just a good thing in life. You want to have enough structure that you got something to fall back on, but you want to leave room for inspiration. Quincy Jones says you got to leave 20% so the Lord can come in the door. That's right. Yes. The angels share. Yes. That's, I think, what you want. Yeah. And there's a really eclectic, I think for the first time, really, they're doing not just the occasional oddball set list choice, but a, a carefully curated career retrospective here. So you've got stuff like, you know, uh, Before They Make Me Run and Dead Flowers, like fan favorites like that, deep cuts, and then completely oddball stuff like 2000 Light Years From Home, which was like a, a staple every night of, yeah, of the I show. I got to say, I do really, I don't know about the interpretive dance portion of it, but I do really <laughs> like the way they play it. So I'm curious because this is, you know, the pay-per-view podcast infamously um, came with a pair of 3D glasses that you could get at like 7-Eleven or whatever. And during this key moments in the show, like 2000 light years, they superimposed these like really weird late 80s 3D effects for the broadcast while Mick is like throwing shapes at the planets. <laughs> it's like oh, these yeah. like star fields and things that come over and in, in over top. So it's like very obviously over the top and what could be more over the top than a pair of cardboard 3d glasses you buy with a slurpee well you gotta give it to them for trying stuff yeah you know i i feel like you know there's the, the on the other side of the spectrum there's the acdc philosophy that yeah. you just do as little as possible you know and and i think that they're really good at that um, and given their audience, like they know their crowd and they know what people want from them. And all right, we can have like inflatable Satan and we can have yeah stuff like that. But they don't, they don't really. Maybe go Brian's going to swing from the from bell. The bell, yeah. bell. But they <laughs> That's don't, like the height of theatrical yeah, and, presentation. And, and, and like a, a 60 year old man does a striptease in the middle of it. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and they all see that as like, that's all fine. That's all normal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the minute we put in like any anything like that reeks of like Vegas, like oh we can't have that, you know. So yeah. I, I I think there's a conservatism in in rock that is really annoying, in that people took this very innovative, and th this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not just rock, but like it's this innovative, bold thing, and then oh no no no, you go out there with anything other than two guitars and some lights and you're you're a sellout now and it's like yeah well, i mean yeah. we're talking about millionaires anyway it's it's kind of ridiculous to say that there's a line i don't know where the line is and i don't care yeah sure we can look back in history and say okay that maybe that was a bit much or it didn't work out the way we thought it was but if, if nobody tries anything then i don't think we really get anywhere hmm. other things about the 89 shows that i find interesting Obviously, this is Bill Wyman's last go-round with them. He's really got a unique sort of tone on this tour. Uh, he's playing the the headless... The Steinberger. Is it, what is this? Steinberger, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, he's using round-wound strings for, mm -hmm. for the first time, I think, ever with the Stones. So it's a little bitier. And yeah. I didn't realize this, but I think Bill Wyman plays with a pick. <laughs> you know, um, 
Correct me if I'm wrong, Internet. Yeah. But I think he plays with a pick. It's just he's playing really high up on the... Yeah, he's like right up here. He plays right under the fretboard. And James yeah, Nave yeah. Jamerson played there too. You know, because you do get a little more... It's a little bit of a thumpier sound there. Mm-hmm. But it's a Mesa amp and it's a Steinberger with round wounds. So it's, it's definitely a lot punchier. And, um, you know, he's a really, really unique player. And this is a great document of his technique and his, his playing. Yeah, for sure. The Tokyo Dome run, like this 1990, um, they basically just continued the Steel Wheels tour in places other than North America. Uh, when they got to Europe, it was rebranded as the Urban Jungle Tour because they just couldn't fit the entire set in the trucks. Uh, so they had to scale it back a little bit, but they did have it on a couple of shows, which they filmed for live at the max. So they could get the sweep of the full thing, like Wembley stadium in London. Yeah. And one of them was in Turkey, right? Uh, I forget where I, I'm pretty sure were. part of live like in the max. Turin. Was, yeah. Tur- yeah. Turin in Italy for sure. But I thought one of them is in Turkey, which has got to be one of the first times anyone played there. Definitely the first time the stunts, unless I'm. This is uh, just, well, they played one. One of the shows was in East Berlin. That must have been a big deal. Uh, yeah. So that's the other yeah. thing is that the Steel Wheels tour did. Uh, I think it's fair to say uh, destroy communism in Eastern Europe. <laughs> uh, I think. I yeah. think history. Tom Stoppard, rock and roll. That whole play. That's what that. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Billy Joel conquering. live in St. Petersburg. A little bit. <laughs> um, but really, it was the Stones um, who. Uh, through years of people and, smuggling in bootleg records and fake yeah. jeans, uh, slowly but surely, uh, pressing them on X-rays, totalitarian. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's where I was going. Uh, removed yeah. totalitarianism from Eastern Europe uh, yeah. uh, until relatively recently. Um, so they got to go back, I think. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're needed all over the world. Let's be honest. Uh, but yeah, the Steel Wheels leg in. Japan was essentially just a residency in February at Tokyo Dome. They changed the lineup a little bit with the backing singers here and there. Um, like Sydney Mazel uh, wasn't there for the European leg, I don't think. They had somebody else um, whose name always escapes But they me. got Lisa in. I always forget that Lisa comes in relatively early. Yeah. Because she's on. Yeah, she's it. there in 89, but she's not there the whole way through. And then you know, comes back for Voodoo Lounge and that's pretty much it. And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. you know, that's the, that's the way I remember them best. <laughs> yeah, I think what's interesting about the Tokyo Dome shows, the ones that have been officially released, the two of them, there's the 24th of February and the 26th, which is the one that has the domestic release so far. The 24th is being included in this upcoming box set. And the 24th, Lisa does the solo in Gimme Shelter. On the 26th, it's Cindy Mazel because they used to alternate. So oh, yeah, you got to yeah. catch them all. Yeah, though I'm interested because it always seems like in Europe they do have to make changes to the show. Mm-hmm. Like when they moved Bridges to Babylon into Europe, they started opening with Jumping Jack Flash and they, uh, they took satisfaction. They turned it into what we kind of know set list wise as the no security. Like the structure yeah. is more or less the same. And it's always a bit frustrating to me. And I know I've said this before, but... North America is always where the tours start, especially like until very recently, they would always start on the East Coast. And I always felt like we were the warm-up gig in Toronto for New York, because New York would end up being a pay-per-view. And they always play well. I'm always happy to see them. But they would always 
like just build on it and the thing would gather momentum and like you hear these shows from Europe or from the Pacific legs of the tour and they've become so much more confident mm. and so much more open and free. Yeah, I really think that the like it'll be interesting to watch the the full Atlantic City show with like uh you know perfectly presented mix, but um that's the very last show of that 89 run and then Tokyo Dome is like a couple weeks further into the tour and then live at the max is even further in than that. So there's a bit of a progression if you care to track it. Um, I do want to return to live at the max because it's, it's a bit of an oddball Um, like shine a light. It was specifically conceived as a way to show off the IMAX film format. So there are some oddities about the way that that thing works in a theater with a giant screen and all those extra channels of surround that doesn't really translate to home video yeah, all I, that well. I did see it in at the Cinesphere, which is down at Ontario Place here. It's it's one of the it's one of the first IMAX theaters ever made. Is it not? Yeah, it is. And it's I think uh, maybe like the Expo World's Fair might have been an earlier one, but according to Felix Apley again here, I'm seeing that it simultaneously premiered at the Cinesphere in Toronto along with other IMAX theaters around Canada and Europe. From what else I understand, um, Live at the Max was also mixed somewhere around here, like in Mississauga. Um, yeah, that would make sense. And maybe at Metalworks. Somewhere somewhere like that. I think, I remember I actually did record at one space. I really can't tell you where it was, but I remember seeing a picture of the stones there and, mm. and I would be like, well, what did they do here? You know, and it's like a little bit of remixing or something yeah. and they obviously want to hype it up because it's such a big client you know but it's kind of hard sometimes like i think there's like one david bowie remix that was done at metalworks and so it's like it's on their it's on their resume yeah, of course like it's on their website yeah. like crazy there's like a fake platinum record on the wall for yeah b-side that he did there one time <laughs> yeah but yeah live at the max so like if you listen to the dvd or the blu-ray releases of that they just basically transferred the imax surround into the 5.1 version that's on those discs. And it sounds pretty weird in a home theater, to be honest. Like, mixed vocal is very dry and up front in the center's channel. I always find that the thing that gets me is that the overdubs are, like, really glaring on that. And I've heard other... There's overdubs on Flashpoint. There's overdubs on all the live albums up to No Security, you know? Mm-hmm. And they at least get the timing right. Whereas, like, it seems with a lot of the guitar solos, it's just kind of like, you know. They- well, those cameras were, like, really clunky. And, like, if you can imagine, like, spinning around a, an 80-kilogram piece of equipment to try and, like, get the guitar solo in time, they had to do a lot of cutting around the coverage that they had. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of – Julian Temple directed that, and he's, like, a music video director, and, like, he did a couple of movies before that. But, I don't know. Driving an IMAX camera is a bit like a really powerful race car. There's only a certain amount of people who can actually do it properly and, and pull it off. And I kind of think that, you know, visually, the quality of it is obviously outstanding. But It is. It's one of the best looking things they've ever done. Yeah, but I, it really desperately needs a remix to fix all of those little timing issues. And, you know, maybe that'll come later on. But for now, personally, my favorite of the full shows that we've got from Steel Wheels is the earlier night, the 24th, from Tokyo Dome that's included in this new box set. So... I'm glad that that's getting a wider release. Um, The Japan-only release was region-locked, so if you didn't have a region-free DVD player, you couldn't play it. 
And yeah, it's just, it's a good tight performance. Like the guitar performances are really excellent. You get Lisa sing, give me shelter. What more do you want? Uh, not much, that's for sure. Uh, the only thing I think with these shows is that they are a bit long. That's true. I do not think I could actually stand up for that long. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a bit, I think we had to break up when we watched the Tokyo Dome thing here. We had to like break it yeah. up because it's, it's just quite a lot. Well, and I think it's that, spread over four discs on the vinyl version. So that tells you something. Yeah. There's always this balance because they felt like they had to do a certain amount of material. And I think they realized that they kind of could get away with de emphasizing certain things. You know, do you want to do 2000 Light Years from Home every single night? Like, <sighs> you know, it kind of. Some of these things, like Midnight Rambler being in the set every night. Yeah, that obviously works. I think it's yeah. a great thing. I don't know why they didn't start doing it. They, they did it every night on Steel Wheels, and then it kind of became an occasional thing on mm-hmm. the 90s tours up to a bigger bang. And then they brought it back as a staple. Same with Gimme Shelter. Like, those were occasional songs. I know I've said this before, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get a better sense, I think, as time goes on of which ones they really can't get away without doing. Yeah. And which ones like, you know, people like us want to hear weird ones, but yeah. you've got to make sure people get their money's worth and not everybody's thrilled about do 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 heartbreaker or even knows it exists. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a and problem. Like, the band themselves are so focused on what they know does work and what they have worked really hard to keep working, if that makes any sense, that they they tend to forget about those things. So like I think Izzy had to teach them the chords to Salt of the Earth because they hadn't played it since the record or since Rock and Roll Circus, at least. Which isn't really playing, of course, on that. But yeah, they, you know, I think that there's been a couple of instances where most of the band is game for trying something and then Keith doesn't really put in the effort. They do it once and it doesn't really work and that's about it. And that's unfortunate because they have a lot of other great songs. And I think that, I think Keith is way tighter now. Like I gotta say, he's way more with it and and on it now. Um, he he doesn't drink, which I think means only drinks beer. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. But he's quit smoking and everything, and it seems like he's yeah. kind of like focusing up a lot more. And um, it's paying dividends, you know. Like you listen to um, Harlem Shuffle from this tour, and then listen to the 2019 Harlem Shuffle that they did in Jersey uh, for No Filter. And he's playing, like, he's not doing all of those, like, incredible bends that he was doing, but he's still, like, doing that whole part that he did on the record. He does this sort of two-hand technique yeah. for the opening of Harwin Shuffle that looks like flamenco, because mm-hmm. I know that he was briefly living in Mexico and, and got into that stuff. I've never seen anything like this, so if anyone knows what's going on there or could teach me, uh, please do let me know, because this is fantastic. And as yeah. always, like, Keith... Keith has so much subtlety and like has all these arcane techniques. And I don't really feel like we get to hear them all because, you know, Jumping Jack Flash is pretty set in stone and, and I love all this stuff. I love all the main hits and I'm, I'm always amazed at how fresh they can make them. And, you know, like sitting there comparing like which version of Tumbling Dice actually got the tempo right and does the whole outro. You know, this is my life, but yeah, he's... He's got a lot of stuff there that they could be bringing out more. And I think that there's a sense of like, oh, well, nobody wants to hear this. Or, you know, Mick writes a set list and he, 
you know, we said like, you know, he, oh, let's not do laugh. I nearly died. It's like, you're killing me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I'd like, I definitely like to see that. Um, maybe we'll get that. I don't know, but I think that he's really underrated as a player. Just it's, he doesn't do, I think that there's uh, a lot more going on there than, than, than we see on the surface. Yeah. And, uh, I think the the advantage of collecting all these different versions, you know, people say there's fatigue now because we've had so many releases from Steel Wheels. Now we've actually documented Voodoo Lounge. You know, before the Totally Stripped box set, there was almost nothing except the uh, cut-down version of Miami and Tokyo. Now we've got those full shows plus all the stripped shows. Uh, we've got multiple releases from Bridges to Babylon. We've got No Security. You know, they've documented every tour now in an extensive way. And yeah, if you're not our obsessive level of fandom, then it doesn't really make sense for you to buy them all. But but if also, you like, do, if you don't want it, don't buy it. I, I, right. I don't understand. I don't understand this. Like, no one is asked. No one need. Like, I feel pressure. I, I will admit, like, I feel pressure to own all of this stuff. And then usually it subsides like, you know, OK, maybe you don't need it. It'll all be on streaming. Yeah. But like. It's not that hard to keep up with. Like I've seen people be like, "Well, I just want standalone vinyl releases." It's like, yeah, you can have those. They're, oh, yeah. they're there. You know, yeah. the fact that there's multiple editions isn't a problem. It's actually great because you can get the one that you want. Yeah. You know? And for this, it's like you know, you can get the standalone Blu-ray. You might have to import it, but you can get it just the Blu-ray. You can get just the DVD if that's what you want. You can just get the vinyl if that's what you want. The only thing that isn't there that does frustrate me is I want the vinyl and the Blu-ray. Mm. Like the fact that you have to buy a bunch of CDs to get the box set with the Blu-ray like that, that doesn't appeal to me because you can get them in higher quality on streaming. So, you know, maybe it's a weird thing. I don't think so because I think the same people who are going to want Blu-ray are going to want vinyl because it's just like a hi-fi experience. I don't know. I don't know other way to describe it. But I, I'd like I know, that. Some people are really still invested in CD. I still have a CD player behind me there. You can sort it. can't really see it. It's under the turntable back there. But it's the same CD player I grew up with as a kid. So I really just have it for nostalgia more than anything else. Oh, and I, I'm, a, I'm not saying that uh, uh, CDs are actually really very useful to me. And I still have them. Uh, sometimes my younger clients come in and they're like, who even has physical media? And I'm just like, behold. Yeah, the people with all this. money. <laughs> I still think that they're, or people who just like haven't <laughs> given it up. Yeah. Um, but they're still very useful to me people because. People have had the same rumpus room since 1987. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like to, I like to be able to um, import them or like rip them and import them into sure. my Pro Tools sessions to like reference stuff. Like I still, it's, it's a bit harder to do that with streaming and volume match and everything. So I still use them. I still think that they're handy. There's still tons of stuff that hasn't made its way to streaming or the wrong, you get some weird remix or remaster done by some person who wasn't involved with the record in the first place. So yeah, like I like to collect CDs and various other editions, but you know, there's almost every other permutation of uh, media combinations, but I, I want vinyl and Blu-ray. That's the mix I want. And, and money talks, you know, yeah, <laughs> here I am. Take my money. So you're just gonna have to buy them separately. I guess that's the way it goes. Or we'll have to continue doing this like split glass uh, Paris glass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what we did for Goat's Head Soup is that Tim got the Japanese import with the Blu-ray and the additional tracks, and I got the vinyl box set. Yes. That way we we have them in rotation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as soon as we can rent a Dolby Atmos theater, uh, we'll we'll do that. 
That's right. Um, but I think I think that's a good way to do it because are we both going to buy every edition of this that exists? I, I think that's a bit crazy. I uh, yeah, I'm not in this economy. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll spend like upwards of you know 100, 200 bucks each time they announce one of these things to get the full fat experience. But I'm not collecting every last format every single time. Yeah, and I don't I don't re- really want all of them, you know. And it, and it's nice because um, a lot of the concert films have gone off streaming. They used to all be on, they were on Crave here and then they were on Amazon and now they're just gone, mm. um, which is annoying. But it's like, you know, I'm glad that I saw LA4M, but I don't think that I need to own it. Um, if they did like a Nebworth or something, like I, I might get that. But, you know, the, I'm not interested in getting every tour. I'm not interested in getting every edition of every tour. And you, you just don't have to buy it if you don't want to. Yeah, sometimes it's more fun because they'll do the one night screening of uh um, like we went and saw the havana moon screening uh, here in toronto and we should talk about actually somebody reached out to us and said that they're doing drive-in theater screenings of havana moon now to comply with social distancing across north america yeah this seems like the only way that live shows are happening i know um a couple of bands are doing it i think metallica just said they were doing one. Um, yeah, Gary Newman tried to do one, but it got canceled in the UK for some reason. I'm not sure why, but... Yeah, I, I mean, it's very uncertain. It's a very difficult and uncertain time for our industry. I just started, I just had my first attended session here yesterday. And, you know, we're, we're keeping it pretty strict as far as... Obviously, you can't make people sing with a mask on, but um, any other time when that's not happening, you know, we're, we're keeping that under control and to implement a whole other thing. And it's very tough as a, as a business owner, you know, you have to invest in way more time and money and in, yeah. in cleaning and, and just making sure everything's safe and you have to implement these new protocols and make sure everybody knows what's going on. We're, we're the easy part of it. It's, it's live shows are, are going to be much more uncertain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mick just said, like he said, it's probably going to be one of the last things that comes back. And, you know, as much as, I've seen I've seen people who own venues or, or or things like that. Oh, why can't we have shows now? It's like because everybody's going to be drunk. Like they're going to be drinking beer. They're not going to wear a mask. Yeah, they're not even going to try to comply with the, the the protocols, and it's just not worth it. Like there was that photo that was going around of an outdoor show in the UK where everybody had like their own riser platform in the audience. So like there was literally yeah. a barrier like stopping you from like wandering around drunkenly <laughs> yeah and there's a theater in uh there's a theater in france that looks like the senate from star wars right? yeah. where everybody has their own little pods yeah. there and like okay yeah. like let's do it yeah let's do it it's gonna be tough to like get the margins that people are used to like we can't do the no filter tour with you know the same level of audience immersion um, I think they're going to have to have a rethink when they finally do reschedule the tour about what they're going to do here in North America. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we just can't expect people who are going to be drinking and and partying and looking to have a good time, like, to to follow these rules. Yeah. And so until we until we have a vaccine, until we have yeah. some serious um, measures in place to contain this thing, which is still a real thing. I mean, in Canada, we're starting to get out of it. Yeah, certain it's places. Still a real thing. Yeah. It's still a real thing in the States. Yeah. We only get back to any kind of normalcy when there's a vaccine or when like somehow we can just contain it and, and get the transmission to as low as it can possibly be. Yeah. So I would recommend if you want to get your stones fixed, try a drive-in screening of Havana Moon. It's a great 
documentary. It'll be great to hear it loud on your car stereo. You can, you know, feel like you saw it with a bunch of people, um, but you don't have to worry about drunken people coming over and breathing on you. So, so check that and out. We can get the details of that. Yeah, I think it's if you go to cinelifeentertainment.com, uh, um, they've got all the listings across North America. I think through the rest of August and September, I'm hearing they're continuing to do that. So uh, check that out if you feel so inclined. Uh, anything else we want to touch on as regards this Steel Wheels live release that you can think of? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the night that uh, Keith had to be restrained from stabbing Donald Trump. Yeah. So it's, it's a piece of history in, in many ways, yeah. not just because we have Axel and Izzy and, and John Lee and Eric Clapton. And I think this is about as good as Eric Clapton has ever played. I'm not like a huge Eric Clapton guy, but and I look, think like the, the stuff he did in the seventies, like that rant about Enoch Powell, it is obviously indefensible. Like nobody, can possibly yeah, apologize I, enough. You know, it's like, there's yeah. no way you come back from that. And like he did, like they all should have known better. And Keith has said some very questionable things too in his time. Not that this excuses it, but it just seems like no one tried to contain this stuff or or ever said anything about like, hey, don't say that. Or, you know, this is not even from a PR perspective of like, hey, no, you just know, like, like the- this is a hurtful <laughs> thing to say to people who, are deserving of respect and dignity. Like that's yeah, what it boils down culture, to. You know, yeah. Yeah. And then we're really just talking about their musicianship and, and, and we're, we're trying not to, I mean, it's not, it's not actually in my interest to try to get justice out of this, but it's obviously worth mentioning that, you know, there's some, there's some really unpleasant stuff in, in a lot of these guys past. And, um, I think in the future for, for musicians who may like this stuff, um, know which part of this you want to emphasize and, that it is not the, I, this is an important thing, I think, for, for anyone who is young and indulged a lot as what happens when you get like a little bit of taste of success that there's a, there's a larger than life and more outlandish side to all performing. And with that comes a sense that you can like transgress social boundaries. Yeah. And when you have all this money and all this stuff um, going for you, it seems like you can do whatever you want. In the older days, it's the music that matters. There was a, and, and you can edit and you can filter stuff. Like you can like Bill Wyman's bass playing, but that doesn't mean you're endorsing his personal life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> just the words are eluding me. But there is a great, this is a great example of this. There's a reverend who teaches about blues. And, you know, this question comes up about, like, you know, can white people play the blues? And, and he says, well, of course, just you have to be responsible about it. And, you know, to go back and look at Charlie Patton's lyrics about not liking darker skinned women, you know, you, you, you don't have to sing those things. You should know what they mean, know what they're saying, learn the cultural context and go, okay, well, this one, you can't really sing it honestly. Two, it's, neither here nor there as uh yeah. and it's going to piss people off so just yeah. like rewrite it edit it whatever that's that's what the tradition of music is about and we can cut out the parts of it that don't work and go forward with the parts that do yeah and i really i get steamed when people overreact to those sort of course corrections like people saying like oh well you can't say anything anymore are just so off mark about what's happening you can say a lot of things <laughs> yeah you can say a lot of things. Um, 
Yeah, you absolutely can. Uh, so yeah, I think that about covers everything we wanted to chat about today. Um, let us know on Facebook if you you know want us to talk about anything else. I think we're eventually going to get to talking about the late 70s in a more fulsome way and not just focusing on one particular album, but um, the whole era in terms of you know recording techniques and things that were changing. Um, so look out for that. I'm moving house pretty soon, so you know stuff is getting cramped with the baby. Um, so it might be a little bit of a delay on the next podcast, but look out for it soon. Anything you else you want to plug? Is that single? Uh, it's coming. It's coming. Kitchen? We just did yeah. some last minute uh, changes. Well, it was trying to ensure good mono compatibility. I hope you ah, can respect this. Absolutely. We had to redo a couple of backing vocals, and I changed one line, but. Always, uh, always well. It's uh, going along. It should be should be out for the end of September. That's great. Okay, so we'll keep everybody updated about that. Um, yeah, like I said, check us out on Facebook. Make sure you're liking. Make sure your favorite podcast catching machine is subscribed. Give us a review. Tell your friends. Uh, you can also email us. Uh, the address is rollingstonespodcast at gmail dot com, or uh, you know, drop a message in the the comments or whatever. Yeah, I can't think of anything else to mention, so I'll log off right now. And uh, I've been Tim Lindsay. And I'm Christian Bonner. Till the next time we say goodbye. That's uh, that's how we do it here. Yeah, that's how the sausage is made.